Good morning, my name is Kevin. The second Bible reading is Luke chapter 5, from verses 27 to 39. Please open the passage and read along with me. Verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say, the old is better. This is the word of God. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church. Uh, what you'll find if you've got one of the handouts on your way in, there should be an outline for the sermon there if you want to follow along or if you're a note taker. Uh, so you should be able to use that. But as we begin, I'm going to pray and thank God for that time, so please uh, pray with me. Gracious God, we know that your way is perfect and that your word is flawless, and we know that you shield all who take refuge in your word, and so as we consider it now, may you help it to be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, come back with me to the days of your youth, to the schoolyard. Uh, for some of us, we're still at school, so we don't need to think back far. But for others of us, uh, it's been a while since we were at school, so you might have to think a fair way back. But cast your memory back. There were many good things and bad things about school. But I think one of the most universally despised things, at least for most people, was the dreaded schoolyard captain's pick. Do you uh, remember what they were? Uh, the way it would work is everyone would line up on the wall and there'd be two captains. And the captains would take turns picking who was going to join their team. 
Uh, they'd start with the top tier, the A-grade athletes, the ones that everyone wanted on their team. Uh, here, at John, that, here at church, that would be John for sure. He's fit and fast and agile. He'd be the first picked. But then they moved down to tier two, still good, but not quite your supreme athletes. Perhaps that would be Ian Jones or Brian Coe. After that was tier three. Uh, they might not have been the best of athletes, but what they lacked in talent, they made up for in heart. And then lastly was the bottom tier, the one that no one really wanted. You only picked them because you had to have someone on your team. You had to pick someone. Uh, here at church, that would probably be, and I, I shouldn't say, but I'm sure you can use your imagination. But that was the bottom tier. But actually, if you remember, if you cast your mind back, there was one other category. Because if you were particularly unlucky and if there was an odd number of people, there was the leftover, the one that just didn't get picked at all. And as bad as it might have been to be the bottom tier, the last picked, at least you still were picked, no one wanted to be the leftover. And so that's the schoolyard captain's pick, one of the worst experiences known to mankind for all but the top tier. It was a horrendous experience feeling sick to the pit of your stomach, wondering, am I going to get picked? And if so, when am I going to be picked? Watching others get picked and thinking, surely I should have been picked ahead of them. There's just something horrible about standing in line, being weighed and judged by others as they determine when you're worth being picked. But what we see in today's passage, Luke 5, is that in one sense, that's what Jesus does. In one sense, we're all lined up against the wall and he's looking, deciding who is he going to pick for his team. And so we might wonder, well, how will he decide? What's it going to be based on? Who will he pick? Will he pick us? Or will we be a leftover? And so today is all about who Jesus calls for his team. And we actually see three things about it. He calls the lowly, not the exalted. He calls us to feast, not to fast. And he calls us to a new way of living, not the old. And so to begin with, Jesus calls the lowly and not the exalted. As everyone lines up on the wall, waiting to be picked. He doesn't call the top tier. He doesn't call the star athlete. Who does he choose? Well, a tax collector, the lowest of the low. Have a look at verse 27. After these, this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Now, this guy, Levi, obviously has a good name, but he also had another name. Uh, it was Matthew. So this, we know this from Matthew chapter 9. This is Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. It was pretty common in those times for Jews to have multiple names. They'd have a Hebrew name and a Greek name. And this guy, Matthew or Levi, was a tax collector. And it can be easy for us to kind of miss the significance of that. But for faithful Jews at those times... There was no one more loathsome than a tax collector. They were the scum of society. They would always be the leftover, always the one that no one wanted. Uh, partly because they were turncoats. The way it would work is the Roman army would go, they'd conquer a place, and then they'd get locals from that place to be their tax collectors. And so Levi is a Jew who's collecting money from Jews for the occupation and enslavement of Jews. And so it's not hard to understand why this guy's despised, but even more than that, he would have been filling his own pockets at the same time. 
because tax collectors were allowed to extort as much money as they wanted out of someone as long as the Romans got their cut. So if Rome wanted $100, then Levi could go and charge $150 and pocket the extra 50 himself. And so these guys were absolutely hated. They were seen as the ultimate sinners, the kind of people that God's Messiah would oppose and punish when he came. And yet, what does Jesus do? He calls Levi to his team. And not just his team, but one of his 12 closest, most trusted followers. See, when Jesus is doing his schoolyard captain's pick, he turns the whole social order on its head. He goes for the leftover first. And this is what we see about Jesus. He calls the lowly, not the exalted. And as he calls, what does Levi do? Have a look at verse 28. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, because we see the disciples leaving everything to follow Jesus pretty regularly, it can be easy to think that this must have been easy for them. But just think about Levi's life for a minute. It was a very comfortable life. Sure, he wasn't well-liked, but he would have been extremely wealthy. A lot of money, able to buy whatever he wants, whenever he wants, has a lot of stuff. Life is good in many ways for Levi. And so it wouldn't have been easy at all to leave that behind and follow Jesus. And yet, Jesus calls and Levi follows. And it's worth asking ourselves, is that what we'd be prepared to do? I wonder how many of us, if Jesus turned up and called us to follow how many would really leave our families, our jobs, our education, our friends, our homes? How many of us would leave that behind and follow Jesus if he asked us to? There's no explanation, no directions, if Jesus just turned up and said, follow me. How many of us would do it? But Jesus is, in a sense, doing that. He's calling us to his team, and it's a great honor. But the question is, are we prepared to give up what we need to, to follow him? Well, the story continues, and crooked party-loving Levi does the only thing he knows how to do. He throws a party, and at this party is the who's who of the scum of Capernaum. There's drug lords, there's crime bosses, there's hit men. They're all the leftovers, the dregs of society, just like Levi. And they gather to feast with Jesus. And as the religious leaders watch this, they can't believe their eyes. And so they ask his disciples, how can Jesus be eating with such sinners? And now remember, eating with someone was a sign of friendship. So essentially they're saying, how can Jesus be friends with such scum? And if we're familiar with the gospel accounts, we, it's easy to just dismiss the Pharisees as the bad guys, uh, and there might be some truth to that, but we've got to remember that at the time, they were seen as the good guys. They were the people who did what you were meant to do, who obeyed God, who kept God's laws and decrees. In terms of religion, they are the top tier. They're the ones that everyone would expect God's Messiah to pick first. And yet, who does Jesus befriend? Well, not the exalted, but the lowly, the leftovers, tax collectors and sinners. And that's exactly, in fact, what Jesus says in verses 31 to 32. Have a look. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, we all know this is how things work. You only go to see the doctor when you're sick. I wonder, can you remember the last time you felt sick enough to go and see a doctor? Now, that might actually be a bit of an unfair question to ask the blokes. Uh, As males, we find it very difficult to go to the doctor. I reckon if my leg was hanging off, almost severed, I reckon even then, I'd say, nah, I'll be fine, I'll walk it off. But regardless, I'm sure you can remember the last time you were sick enough to go to the doctor's. Pounding headache, aching lungs, queasy stomach. But let me ask you this. When was the last time you went to the doctor's when you were feeling healthy? When was the last time you woke up in the morning and thought to yourself, gee, I feel good today. I reckon I might go for a leisurely trip to the hospital. I mean, of course we don't. That's not how things work. We only go to the doctors when we're feeling sick. And in the same way, only those who know that they're spiritually sick will go and see a spiritual doctor. Only those who realize their sinfulness will repent and turn to Jesus. Now, you might be wondering, well, does that mean that some are actually healthy? Does that mean that the Pharisees are righteous? I know we know it can't be that because just a little bit later in Luke's gospel, Jesus calls the Pharisees unmarked graves full of death and rotting flesh, defiling anyone who comes near. So it's not that they're actually healthy or righteous, but rather it's about their own self-perception. In their own eyes, they're healthy, righteous, the exalted. But Jesus hasn't come to call the exalted, those, or at least those who think that they're exalted, but rather he's come to call the lowly. And it is something we need to reflect on. Is this how we see ourselves? As spiritually sick in need of a spiritual doctor? I'm sure for some of us it is. I'm sure for some of us we're keenly aware of our sinfulness. For others of us, I'm sure that at least at times we're aware of our sinfulness. But I think there's a warning here for us. That it's such, so easy to become just like the Pharisees, to think of ourselves as, by and large, okay. We kind of often compare down. We look at others that we think are worse than us, and we think we're doing okay. Sure, we're not perfect, but we're not a murderer. We haven't committed corporate embezzlement, and so we think we're fairly okay. But in reality, Jesus tells us, and as we saw in Romans 3 before, Each and every single one of us is sinful, spiritually sick, in need of a spiritual doctor. Now, one of the most insightful books on this topic, John actually mentioned it last week, but I thought I'd give it another plug, is Respectable Sins. I think this would be probably the most challenging book I've ever read, where he, he goes through and he takes us through all these things that we just dismiss as okay. Sins that we do, pride, jealousy, envy, greed, that we just think, oh, that's just part of being a human. But actually, in God's eyes, it's not. In God's eyes, that is sin. At least in one sense, envy is as bad as murder. Pride is as bad as adultery. See, the reality is that every single one of us is a sinner in need of a saviour. Every single one of us is sin-sick in need of sin-healing. And what wonderful news it is then that Jesus came for people like us, sinners, the leftovers, 
those who are not deserving to be picked, not meriting being picked, but picked anyway. See, we are who Jesus came for, and the lowly, not the exalted. And what does he call us to? Well, he calls us to a feast, not to a fast. Uh, the Christian life isn't a begrudging obedience, born out of obligation and debt, but rather it's a joyful rejoicing at the forgiveness and healing on offer. Because as the party continues, some people come to Jesus and they want to know why Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. Uh, fasting was the religious thing to do to show your sadness at offending God. And so they want to know, why are your disciples not doing that, Jesus? And to answer them, Jesus talks about a wedding feast. Have a look at verses 34 and 35. Jesus answered them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. In those days, they will fast. Now, Jesus says you can't fast while the bridegroom is with you. Uh, That's perhaps a little bit missed on us. In our weddings today, the focus of the wedding is the bride. Uh, We've got five weddings coming up here at church over the next month and a half or so. And on those days, all of our eyes will be on Faye and on Louisa, and on Emily, and on Joy, and on Angela, will notice their wedding dress, and their hair, and their makeup, and their bridesmaids. That's what we'll notice. And then maybe eventually we'll notice that the guy's there too. But in those times, it was the reverse. The bridegroom was the absolute star of the wedding. And Jesus is saying when the star of the wedding arrives, of course it's not a time for mourning. When the bride arrives at a wedding, the band doesn't play a sad and mournful dirge. When the minister opens at a wedding, he doesn't say we're gathered together on this sad occasion. At the reception, the best man doesn't give a speech lamenting the marriage, or at least I hope he doesn't, because weddings are a time for celebration. And in the same way, Jesus has called us to a feast, not to a fast. Why? Because the bridegroom has come. Now, this is a really important Old Testament image. In the Old Testament, the bridegroom refers to God. We see that in Hosea and Isaiah, for example. And so, Jesus referring to himself as the bridegroom is him declaring, I am God. I am God, come to be with my people. Even though we're sinful. In fact, because we're sinful, He has come to heal us, to wash us clean. I mean, how incredible is that? That God Himself, the one who formed the dazzling stars in the heaven, who formed the murky depth of the sea and everything in between, the one who spoke and created that, has come down to earth to be with us, His people, to rescue us from sin and from death. And of course, that's a time for feasting, not for fasting, because God has come with us. But the question you might be asking is, well, Jesus says here that the bridegroom will be taken away, and on that day, his people will fast. And so the question is, well, what age are we living in? Should we be fasting? Jesus was taken away. Well, certainly he was taken away on the cross, and in those days, the disciples did fast. But of course, Jesus rose triumphant over death and then ascended to be with God, and then gave us His Spirit. So in a sense, we still have, even today, the bridegroom with us, or at least His Spirit with us. 
And so we are not in times of fasting, but we are in times of feasting. That is what Jesus calls us to. And because of that, He also calls us to a new way of living, not the old. Uh, To make this point, He uses three quick illustrations about new and old. In each of them, the new refers to what Jesus is bringing in. Uh, We commonly and often refer to this as the new covenant, the new way that God interacts with us, His people. And the old here refers to the old covenant, the old way that God interacted with His people. And what we see from this section is that being on Jesus' team represents a whole new way. It's not the old way, and it's not a mixture of the old and the new. It requires a completely different, a completely new way of seeing things. And so the first illustration that makes that point is about sowing. Have a look at verse 36. No one tears a piece out of a new garment and sews it onto an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward illustration. You wouldn't cut a hole out of your $2,000 Armani suit to repair a hole in your old, dirty, grimy gardening jeans. If you did, you'd be ruining both. Your suit now has a hole and the patch doesn't match the jeans. And in the same way, we can't just cut and take bits and pieces of what Jesus says and try and attach it onto the old, to our existing worldview. We can't say, oh, well, I like what Jesus says about being generous, so I'll take that. But I don't like what He says about having to forgive those who wrong me, so I'll leave that on the side. See, Jesus is just not, is not just a source of useful patches. It doesn't work like that. He calls us to a new way of living. He then does the second illustration, talking about wine and wineskins. Have a look at verses 37 to 38. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Now, uh, I'm sure many of us are familiar with sewing and how to do sewing, But I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, are pretty unfamiliar with how storing wine and making wine works. So let me give you a crash course in it, uh, mostly with thanks to Wikipedia. Uh, When you make new wine, it actually continues to ferment for a while. And as it ferments, it expands out. Now, the problem with that is that old wine skins, what you store wine in, are quite brittle. And so if you put new wine in old wine skins, as the wine ferments and expands the old wineskin's too brittle, it can't expand with it, and so it will crack, it will leak, and both will be spoiled. Now, what you need to do is put new wine into new wineskins that are still soft and supple and will expand out as the wine expands. And the point is, again, we can't just add Jesus, the new wine, to our existing worldview. The new and the old don't go together. To hold the new wine... We need something completely new. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. A new way of living, not the old. And then the final illustration is also about wine. Have a look at verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now, uh, that translation for better, I think is not the most helpful translation. It comes from the Greek word uh, krestos, which can also be translated as something like good or suitable. And so it could say the old is good. So it's not saying that objectively the old is better 
than the new. Rather, what it's talking about is those who prefer the old, who think that the old is good enough, who think, I don't need to test the new because I've had the old. Someone who's drunk, got it their own type of wine, own brand of wine they like to drink, and they're content with that, they're happy with that, and they won't even try the new. That's the sense that it's conveying. And we know that that's often the way the world works, isn't it? People are happy with the old. They're happy with how their life is going. So much so that they won't even try the new. I heard a minister talking recently about an interaction he'd had when he was at uni. He was playing in a hockey team with other uni students. And they heard he was going to be a, uh, he was studying to be a minister. And so one afternoon, they all sat down and they had a big, long conversation about all their different worldviews. And in that conversation... One older student, a mature age student, shared how when he was starting back at uni 10 years prior, he said he almost accepted Jesus. Then almost as a throwaway line, he said, it would be much harder now, 10 years later. And he's right, that would be harder because he's more used to the old. It's been 10 more years of habits to undo, 10 more years of getting set in his ways, Ten more years of thinking the old is good. But what Jesus calls us to do is to leave the old behind. To leave behind the self-denial and fasting of the old and instead to focus on the new. And of course we should do that if the new is a life of feasting, not of fasting. I mean, the new is so much better than the old. Why would we stick with the old? And so uh, that's our passage. And I, I, find a, I found a really helpful passage to think through. I think what it shows us, what I particularly like about what it shows us, is it helps us to view the world rightly. In a sense, it kind of gives us 2020 vision. And in particular, it helps us with three things about how we're to view. It helps the way I see me. It helps the way I see life. And it helps the way I see the faith. Firstly, it helps the way I see me. Now think back to the schoolyard's captain pick. Everyone is lining up on the wall. And there's Jesus and there's the other captain. The other captain picks based on worth, based on athletic ability, but not Jesus. And so you can just imagine as the captains are lying up, lining up, it's Jesus' turn to call out a name and everyone's expecting him to call out the top tier. But instead... He calls the leftover first. You can just imagine the other captain is shocked, but he'll take that blessing. And so he picks his one and he picks the top tier. Then everyone, all the eyes turn back to Jesus. Who will Jesus pick next? Surely this time he'll at least pick the second tier. But no, he goes to the bottom tier. See, this is how Jesus works. This is who he calls to his team. He works from the bottom. Uh, and knowing this, helps the way I see me. It gives me both an extremely high view of myself and an extremely humble view of myself. It keeps me humble because it obliterates any sense of superiority. It's impossible to see myself as more worthy than anyone else because Jesus doesn't choose based on merit. And yet, at the same time, I'm so valued and treasured by God that he would choose me for his team. I mean, what an honor is that? And so I wonder, how do you see yourself? Are there people you feel superior to, more deserving than? 
do you think to yourself, of course God would pick me above them. Is that how you see yourself? Or do you have too low a view of yourself, thinking that you're insignificant and unimportant? I wonder, are there people here at church even that you feel worse than, that you feel less qualified than, that you feel less deserving than? You think to yourself, of course God would pick them. Look how godly they are, look how gracious they are, look how gifted they are. They're much more deserving than I am. I wonder, how do you view yourself? Well, you are important, but not because of some kind of merit, but simply because Jesus calls you to his team. See, Luke 5 gives us such clarity about the way I see me. And it also helps the way I see life. It's a feast, not a fast. See, sadly in our society, I think Christians have this perception for being killjoys, sticks in the mud, people who are boring and dull, who don't enjoy anything, who always say no. Have you come across that kind of perception before? But you see how that's not to be the case at all. We should be known as people of joy because life is to be enjoyed, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And so we can enjoy the sunshine and the surf, we can enjoy food and the footy, we can enjoy movies and music, we can enjoy everything because it's a gift from God to be enjoyed. Now, of course, uh, everything can be perverted and go too far. We don't want to embrace worldliness. We don't want to find our satisfaction in the things of this world. But we do embrace them as good gifts from God, because every good and perfect gift is from above. And I wonder, is that how you describe yourself as a person of joy? Is that how others would describe you if they were to look on you? It's worth chatting to someone later today or later this afternoon or this week. Ask someone you trust and you value. Ask them, is the perception I give off of someone feasting, of someone of joy? See, this is the way I'm to see life as something good, worth celebrating, because it's a gift from God. And finally, it gives us clarity for the way I see the faith. See, we no longer live under the old way because the new has come. A new temple, a new spirit, a new heart. It's based on the old. It was predicted by the old. But we don't go back to the old. Imagine someone who'd fled a country that was under severe dictatorship, North Korea. And they come here to a new country and they're free and they're safe and life is so much better here. How crazy would it be if that person was to long back for North Korea? was to want to try and live here how they'd lived in North Korea under dictatorship, if they were to try and implement and bring in things that were there here. Of course they don't. I mean, the new is so much better than the old. And that's what we're in. See, the old way was a way of rules and regulations. But the new way is a way of walking in assurance of an unconditionally loving relationship based not on our merit, but based on the work of another. See, this is the way we're to see the faith, not as rules and regulations, but as relationship. Now, of course, we don't want to be libertines. There are rules and, relation, uh, rules and regulations, but they're so much more limited than what they used to be, than the old way. The new is far, far better, a life of feasting, as we bask in the undeserved grace as we're called onto Jesus' team. 
See, this is what Jesus is calling you to. In a sense, you're lined up against the wall and the captain is standing there calling to you and this is what he's calling you to. So the question is, will you answer? I'm going to pray. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the unmerited grace you've shown us, that even though we are lowly sinners, undeserving of your salvation, undeserving of being called onto your team, still you love us so much that you call us, us the leftovers, the bottom tier. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Please, uh, because of that, help us to be people of feasting, help us to be known as people of joy. Uh, Help that to be what people see when they look on us. And please help us not to yearn back for the old way, a way of trying to earn things, of rules and regulations, but instead to bask in this new way of relationship with you, our loving Saviour. And so we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for his life, death and resurrection and the way that gets us onto your team. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.